Good deal. Okay, everyone, welcome to this episode of Catching Foxes, a special one, because we're not going to talk about the sex abuse scandal, I hope. We probably will. I always make it about that. But <laughs> we are interviewing Abigail Favale. Did I do it? I did it right. You right? did it. Favale. That was great. That was great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big boy. Uh, <laughs> she's the assistant professor of English and a faculty fellow in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. Oh, whoa. So we're catching foxes right now, huh? Eh? Yeah. George, yeah. George oh, yeah. That's very good. Very good. It is very good. Thank you. So how this interview came about was uh, I was reading first things. Uh, someone sent me an email, probably something horrible about the McCarrick scandal, and I was reading it on first things. And then I saw a title on the, the web content that said, Kissing Purity Culture Goodbye. And I was like, oh, that sounds like I kissed dating goodbye. And I scrolled down, and <clears throat> there it is, officially denounced Joshua Harris, 21 years later, officially denounced and discontinued publication of his best-selling book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And I read this article, and I thought that you were writing about my high school experience in so many ways. <laughs> so then I saw your thing. I, I dropped down. And I was like, well, I need to find out more from this author. And I read every single thing that you've published on First Things. And then I said, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to reach out to her, see if an academic would lower herself to our <laughs> standards. And then you replied, I'm a big fan of the show. It's true. It's true. And I lost, I about lost my damn mind. So <laughs> wonderful, wonderful yeah. to have you. How did you hear about the show? Okay. So, so I'm a fairly recent Catholic convert myself. And in part, like early on in my conversion, I started binging on Catholic podcasts. And I started listening to Matt Frad's Pints with Aquinas. And you all had like this really annoying commercial that would be played on the Pints of Aquinas, where it was sort of like, do, 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 catching foxes, foxes, fox, you know, it was just, and <laughs> oh, I remember, yeah, was... I remember thinking, that's horrible. I will never listen to that podcast or whatever. So, but then eventually I tried it and I was like, oh man, these guys are great. So, um, yeah, I've been listening to you guys for a couple of years, sort of off and on here. My name is Gomer and I'm the co-host of Catching Foxes, Foxes, fo fo Foxes, Catching Foxes, Foxes. I would like to tell you about something more important than my podcast. What? Pints with Aquinas. Pint, pint, pop, 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 pints with Aquinas. Uh, yeah, so I, it took me a minute to make the connection, though, because your email was so formal. Dear <laughs> Professor Favalli, I am Mike Gormley. I was like, oh, Mike Gormley, I don't know who that is. And then I was like, oh, it's Gomer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh. I can turn it on when I need to, but mostly I speak street. But I can turn it on. I can. <laughs> you do can. You can. It was very profesh. Very, very. <laughs> Thank profesh. you. Yeah. Thank you. And then one of your responses at some point was "amaze balls," and I was like, "Nailed it!" This is going to be a fun <laughs> interview. All right, let me grab Luke. He is online. I'm going to add him to this okay. call. If I lose you, it's not my fault. Uh, so also, you know, you're free to cuss, but if that's not your thing, no worries, no yeah. pressure. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll just so let's do what talk. I feel. Yeah, let's talk. I'll do it. Although I will say, if we do talk yeah. about the scandal, it's probably going to yes. happen. Give in. So I will put that out there. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you are you just recently became Catholic? Yes, in 2014. Easter. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Now, and and so you got you wrote a book about it called Into the Deep. I did. Yes. I have a review copy of it. I have a sick PDF sitting right here on my desktop. Right Ooh, now. PDF! Wow. Okay. Well, I I requested it before you told them. Ah, 
I see. That I request. I just went online. This is part of me stalking you, and I requested the book <laughs> when you said okay, and I was like, sweet, get the book. And then, uh, and then she's like, I'll send you a hard copy if you want it. So very cool, very cool. So what drew you into the Catholic Church? What what was it for you? Coming from um, a what 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 is the school you said? It was a it's an evangelical. Quaker, Quaker school. school. Yeah. So I, I teach at George Fox and I also went here as an undergrad. So it's an evangelical Quaker school. Um, and I was raised evangelical, non-denominational Christian. And when I was a college student, I'll just give you guys sort of the, the sketch here. Um, right. When I was a college student, I started going to an Anglican church and that was my first encounter with um, a liturgical form of Christianity, mm. the idea of sacraments vaguely construed and the saints, and I loved it. Um, but then I also got super into feminism when I was um, an undergrad as well. And for a while, those things sort of harmonized nicely. Uh, but then eventually, kind of as I left undergrad into my um, 20s, feminism sort of became my religion, kind of this postmodern feminist, um, therapeutic sort of everything's a beautiful metaphor kind of Christianity. And uh, I was kind of in that place for about a decade, um, gradually deteriorating into a kind of spiritual crisis that came to a head and I very abruptly became Catholic. Um, so like in October of 2013, at the beginning of the month, I wasn't even thinking about being Catholic, at least not consciously. And then by the end of the month, I was emailing a nun about starting RCIA. So it was... It's really, it's a bizarre story, which is one of the reasons I decided to write a book about it. And so for me, a lot of the conversion part actually happened after I entered the church and sort of actually had to figure out how to reconcile (laughs) some of the things that weirded me out, which for me weren't the typical Protestant things like, oh, the Pope, oh, Mary, you know, I was really cool with Mary. You know, the Pope seems like a cool guy too. So it didn't really worry me, but I was um, really kind of freaked out by the no contraception, mm, no women's mm-hmm. ordination, and uh, just the, I was very kind of pro same-sex marriage. So that that's where I had to do the kind of um, wrestling. So my, the real kind of inner conversion happened in the first couple of years of becoming Catholic. And um, so that's kind of, I write a lot about that in the, in the book. Um, but I think there's only really the only explanation I have is, is just sort of, um, grace. I was in a very, a moment of crisis in my life and some things had been happening that in a way kind of destabled kind of my very dogmatic feminism enough, I think, to, um, let me take another look at, um, Catholicism. And then I was just really kind of starved. I was spiritually starved. So I just sort of like clamored for the Eucharist and then, you know, joined the church. And then I was like, Oh wait, what did I do? What, what, what do I believe? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I'm Catholic now. What do I believe? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what, what were those issues with feminism that you said you had a a handful of things that kind of made you rethink the. Right. Okay. So, um, let me think. Well, the, one of the big things was that I became a mother, um, at the end of my twenties and, uh, that the experience of pregnancy, well, I had, okay, not initially. So I was really sick. 
I was really sick. And this was on all the, um, at the first, the first trimester. And this was on all the like contraception mandate with the affordable care act stuff was going down. So the news was full of, you know, like Catholic priests, like telling women what to do with their lady parts or whatever, you know, and feminist bloggers were, you know, shaking their, um, pitchforks on Twitter and stuff. So, um, I was like, well, I was like, (laughs) yeah, they were, they were knocking their arrows to fire at each other's faces on Twitter. And, um, yeah, so I was watching this go down, like feeling super sick. And that really like, I was like, oh, this is horrible. Like reproductive rights are so important, you know? And then when I was still in my first trimester, but, uh, about 12 weeks along, there was a cyst on the umbilical cord. So we had to have, um, an ultrasound, um, that was like an unscheduled ultrasound. Cause usually you get it like at the very beginning when you have like a little lima bean in there, like this like shaded shadow of a lima bean. Right. And then you have mm-hmm. your mid pregnancy ultrasound where you can sort of see like, Oh look, there's an arm. Oh, there's like a ghoulish looking face <laughs> that looks like a <laughs> demon baby coming at you. You know, that's sort of like, Oh yeah. yeah, don't print that one out. Um, so this was sort of an unusual time to have an ultrasound. So the baby was small enough that you could see, I could see his whole body on the screen, but it was still so early on. You know, I honestly thought, you know, here I am like a very educated woman. Like I know a lot. I've read a lot. Um, I have a PhD, but I still had this thought that, oh, in the first trimester, it's pretty much just this weird kind of like fish creature. That's not really a person yet. And then when I saw him, it was just, it was just incredible. I mean, he was just kicking around. He had so much room in there. He was like spinning circles. I could see like his full brain. It looked like this cauliflower and and he was sucking his thumb. I mean, I was just floored. I was just blown away. And that, that kind of began to sort of get me to begin asking questions about some of the things I'd just taken for granted, I think. Um, and then actually becoming a mother and realizing how, the central feminist value or virtue of autonomy just really does not map onto my life anymore. And, (laughs) and, you know, it's not like my, I was, you know, I had a son and all of a sudden my, my identity was very much wrapped up in my husband, my son, you know, I wasn't, I don't know. I just, it just began to kind of woo me away from this um, maybe too narrow focus on women's issues in, in kind of opposition to other things. Um, and there's, there's more parts to it as well. Like I, you know, that I write about in the book, like I started, I was blogging at the time and I started this weird sort of correspondence with some of these like, um, men's rights activists online, some of which were like super toxic and unpleasant, but also I, I began to see that they were kind of like, real people who'd been screwed over in many lives and were just sort of like venting this pain. And so I don't know. I just like, what, what is men's rights? I've never even heard of that. You haven't all. Well, that's okay. I feel like I, I don't, if that particular door has not been opened for you, <laughs> that's totally fine. You can just like Are walk they? on by. <laughs> I don't want to be like the one to introduce you to that. Well, I'm going to visit YouTube later. Now. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, don't go too far down that online rabbit hole for sure. <laughs> Oh no, I'm in ASMR again. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that stuff like the red pill on uh yeah, yeah, yeah. on red? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what that stuff is, yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, anyway, so this kind of I just kind of began like asking questions that I had never let myself question before. 
And then that was coupled with an increasing spiritual crisis where I was just like, okay, I'm either going to like quit this Christianity thing for good or something's going to change because I just wasn't, I mean, here I was teaching in a Christian school, you know, trying to sort of drum up this like completely, the sense of faith that was just so, um, I don't know, so weak and empty. And I just felt like I was living a lie. And so, um, yeah, and I don't know. And then like in that kind of moment of crisis, I just, um, so the, the actual thing that happened was I was, so I was feeling like I was living a lie and I was, I was planning to leave my job. Um, and not work for a Christian school. Because where I work now, you have to sign a statement of faith in, um, and be a, a practicing Christian. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe if I, I was like, maybe I'll just go work at a Catholic university because... Actually, yeah, that's sort of what I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't have to necessarily be a Christian, but I still am like super interested in Christianity. I love theology and literature. Thanks, Land of Lake State. I know, right? Well, you know, well, that's kind of, okay. So, I mean, this is sort of interesting though, because honestly in my, in, you know, in my personal story, I think because I was coming from a very like progressive postmodern feminist, like some, some of the like more what I would now see as kind of heterodox liberal Catholics um, and that kind of thought it did kind of, bef- it was sort of a gateway for me in a way, like a kind of a middle space where I could be like, okay, I can kind of, I can roll with this, you know? Um, even though now, of course I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, it, it's, um, you know, heterodox in some ways, but yeah. So anyway, did so you I was listen like, to, have what? you listened to the last couple episodes? I have listened to the, the not the entire thing of the most recent one, but I listened to the whole thing of the the others. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about like the the notion of perverting the gospel in order to appeal to the world. Yeah, that was one of our episodes a little bit ago, and I feel like you kind of touched on it in an interesting way because that's the point of like I used to always ask myself, why do these people who don't who are constantly trying to change everything the church teaches, why are they so concerned with being Catholic? Right. Like, did you ever wonder that? Like, why do they want, you know, the church to be pro-abortion and, you know, like all this stuff? I, it, it always confused me. But I, I feel like it was born out of, like, they, they love and appreciate their Catholic faith. Right. But, but at the same time, they're accommodating a worldview that's irreconcilable. And so they're trying to reconcile it. Yeah. Well, so just you calling them heterodox. Like, now I would see them as heterodox. But then they were a gateway. I was like. I, I think that's what they think they're trying to do. They're trying to build a gateway to their faith that they love and appreciate, but at the same time... Well, not. I mean, I don't think they would see me as a successful... Like, they, they <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think they would be like, oh, shoot, she's one of those converts, you know, like, which is actually, you know, I've had, I had, had some comments like that from, from yeah. folks who are, you know, you know well-meaning um, Catholics, but who are like, okay, well, you know, I'm glad you're becoming Catholic, but just don't become one of those converts, you know, like (laughs) one of the crazies that actually believe what the church teaches. Um, so, and you know, honestly, at at first, when I first joined the church, I didn't think I would be, but I I was coming in, it was still a very kind of denominational mindset where, yeah, you know, like there's a bunch of different kinds of Christianity on offer. You find the one that works best for you. And then, you know, you kind of, you know, I still, I still didn't have a Catholic mentality about it, you know, so that kind of came later. Yeah. Was like, there like one thing that kind of like, that like, that's where things started to change or is there like one point you can kind of go, that's where things started to like, kind of like turn right a little bit 
or is it more just like it was all these like tiny things that just kind of like happened and then like all of a sudden you're like oh wow like i've really changed in this you know mm-hmm. whatever um you mean so like after i became catholic and i yeah, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. like i think at times you can kind of point towards a moment where it goes you know, I didn't have a huge like St. Paul moment, but there was this moment where I go, oh, that's where things started, started to change. And then the, the, then there's like also times where it's just like, wow, I've changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like a rear view mirror. Yeah. 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 So uh, 10 days after I became Catholic, I got pregnant, which is like, you know, such a cliche, right? It's like I yeah. become Catholic <laughs> and then like immediately I get knocked up. Right. And so. And I was trying at the time to learn natural family planning while in this really difficult postpartum phase, which is mm. not recommended. I'll put that out to your listening audience. <laughs> like, choose a better time to try to learn. Um, but, you know, that's where I was. That's what I was trying to do. And so I was so pissed off. I was, I was mad at, you know, the church, whatever. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of these, like, you know these men and their hats and their fancy shoes, like they've never been lactating. Like, how do they know how hard it is? You know? And, um, and so it was, you know, I didn't have this like amazing, um, sort of conversion experience right away. You know, I got pregnant and I was sort of like, this wasn't planned. I'd been trying really hard to like follow all the rules. And, um, but that ended up, of course, you know, being perfect timing. It's been such a gift. And it was really a mercy for me, I think, in my life because it kind of, because I was pregnant, it actually allowed me to just shelve that stuff, you know, to just sort of be like, okay, you actually don't have to worry about getting pregnant because you are for the next nine months. So it gave me time to um, to actually sort of figure out like what why does the church teach what it teaches? Cause I went to, I went to confession after a while, cause I was mad, you know, I was like, I gotta go, I gotta deal with this. So I went to go talk to my priest about it. Um, who was a, a different priest than I, I currently have. Um, and he actually was like, yeah, you know, if your conscience tells you to use contraception, don't worry about it. And what was interesting was like, I was going in there expecting to be told like, no, you got to follow the church. And instead he was like, yeah, you don't really have to follow the church. But I didn't like that answer. I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, no, <laughs> like there's something here, you know, I've got to figure this out. And so then I was like, okay. And that's when I started doing a deep dive in reading about theology, of the body, reading Humanae Vitae, and then really loving theology, of the body. And then I tried to like somehow reconcile theology, of the body with my views about homosexuality mm-hmm. and that didn't work. That was probably the most disorienting part of my conversion because my views on marriage were changing like right as the Supreme court decision came down. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> Oh no, now it can't be popular. It, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly it was, it, it did make me realize how much of what I had thought, and I'm speaking in my, you know, myself here, like how much what I had thought was sort of this like noble altruism was really, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it did really feed my ego. Like I, you know, I got right. a lot of social capital and kind of hits and applause, you know, for, um, standing on a soapbox about stuff. And, and so right when there was like a really big soapbox I could have stood on, you know, I was like, yeah, so that was really that was really tough. Um, but it was really when my so when my daughter was born, right at the beginning of Lent, um, and this was in 2015, so a year, almost after I'd become Catholic. Um, that that Lent was when I 
I kind of had this, this moment, I guess you would say, where I really thought like, okay, I actually want to give myself over to this. Like, I want this to be serious. I don't want to be just like this Sunday Christian, you know, where I go to mass on Sundays and it doesn't touch any other part of my life. Um, and then that kind of just that sort of shift in my heart, I guess, kind of became a cascade of, of things where I, um, began to sort of practice my faith more intentionally. And, and then God also used that moment to just do a pretty remarkable kind of, um, worldview transformation that I've never, I've never experienced anything like it. And it's, it was really wonderful and incredibly hard, uh, really disorienting. And it was disorienting for me. And I think it was really disorienting for everyone around me because they weren't able to even sort of see what was going on in, you know, in my inner yeah. life. So it was just sort of like, oh, like there's this, you know, progressive feminist professor. And then like, whoa, holy shit. Now she's this like weird Roman Catholic and she seems really into it. Like what's happening? <laughs> you know? like <laughs> One um, of these things is not like the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um I know like a couple people who have experienced that where there's this it's almost like this intellectual curiosity that comes from like a life life experience that will cause a conversion to happen and especially when they come out of the protestant side of things i guess they're kind of jarred by like like lack of community within the catholic church did you experience that at all Absolutely. Totally. Yes. Okay. So I work at a Protestant school. My husband isn't a Christian or hasn't been, well, that's a whole other story. But at the time my <laughs> husband was, you know, not a Christian. No one in my family's ever been Catholic. My mom is now Catholic. Um, she joined the church, uh, um, after I did a couple of years, but, um, so, and I had very few Catholic friends, you know, I had, um, I had a couple here and there. I had a former student who, converted while he was here and is now about to become a priest who became very much, um, kind of a mentor for me. But, you know, we, you know, I didn't in my sort of inner circle, people I saw day to day, I didn't really know any Catholics, which is another reason why I, the fact that I became Catholic is just so bizarre. You know, the more I tell the story, I'm like, this is so weird. (laughs) You know, it's hard to explain. Like now I have a really wonderful Catholic community that I'm so grateful for, but it took, you know, it took a couple of years. Um, so yeah, I wasn't, you know, I was going to mass by myself. Um, you know, the parish I was going to didn't really have much of a like fellowship hour afterwards. So I didn't really meet a lot of people, you know, I knew some of the folks who'd, um, I knew kind of the daily mass crew, you know, these like wonderful retired people who, who often went to daily mass and they kind of knew me by sight. And, but yeah, I was really lonely and sort of you know, clamoring for a Catholic community. And, but it took several years to sort of build and, um, and I had to kind of seek it out. You know, I live in an area where, um, I think, you know, you have to be intentional about forming Catholic community because it's a very, I live in this kind of like, kind of, you know, evangelical Quaker pocket in a very secular area, you know, Portland, Mm. I think is maybe the most secular city in the nation, you know, it's just very, um, yeah, but, Um, but there are really vibrant pockets of Catholic community, you know, but you have to sort of seek them out. And, and now I have really wonderful Catholic friendships and that I'm so grateful for. But at the time, yeah, I was like, I was flying solo really. And it was strange because, you know, and, you know, if you go to like an evangelical church, like a good one, 
you know, it's like everyone's mobbing you afterwards. Like, where are you? Like, come over. It's somewhat so meet this person, you know, here, have like a casserole and, um, yeah. you know, like join a small and group. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it's very like, look, there's a new face. Let's get him. But, um, yeah, it's get not, him to sign a yeah. membership card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the Catholic culture at all. So, um, you know, and there's, you know, there's, a, there's, I understand Wait, it. That's you know? not the Catholic culture I know, at it's all. Not, it's not. Mm, I don't know about that. Did someone yell at you about you sitting in their pew? That's the Catholic culture. <laughs> oh, excuse me, miss. You obviously knew here. You're sitting in my pew. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did I say about eye contact? <laughs> hey, guys. It's Luke here. I wanted to talk to you guys really quick about our sponsor for this week. It is Curo again. We really like only doing ads with things that we believe in. Some of our favorite ads that we do are ones that we really care about and that are like really good ideas that we want to share with all of you. And that's what uh, Kiro is and why I'm so pumped to talk with you about them. So we're all called to promote a culture of life. But how often do we stop and think about like what this has to do with the health care that we get from our work or the insurance that we buy? Oftentimes there are things we are paying into a thing that has a lot of things that as Catholic we would really not be okay with. A lot of times in insurance just feels so bureaucratic and impersonal, which is why I'm so pumped to learn about what Curo does. So like right now is the time when open enrollment is going on, which 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 means that you have like Americans everywhere try to find their best option for 2019. I really wanted to encourage you, if, if you're having to stop and think about which insurance provider is best, to really give Curo a chance. Their website is mycatholichealthcare.org, and here's really how it works. You basically have like a membership fee each month or a share. Basically, what happens is you like have a person who's also paying into it who basically has some like type of like need. Curio then takes over and is going to like work with the provider to then like negotiate the best price. Once that price is set, all of the members then share to pay for that need. So it really is the community coming together to help each other out. How great is this? So I really want to encourage you guys to check that out. They start at $184 a month. They are completely recognized by the Affordable Health Care Act. This needs to be an option that you talk about with your spouse, pray about it, whatever. Check this out, mycatholichealthcare.org. We've already heard of people who heard our ad last week who are probably going to join. And I really encourage you all to think about this. I'm doing it as well. Again, check out mycatholichealthcare.org. I want to thank Kiro for sponsoring Catching Foxes. So, okay, so then how do you go from there to like the first things article about the like holy purity culture? Are you you want me to make a transition or is that what you're you're wanting to make oh. a transition? Oh, that's it. This is this is the grand transition. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're, we're, we're not very good at this. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Were you raised as an evangelical Quaker like this? No, not a Quaker. No. An evangelical, not an evangelical Quaker. So okay, yeah. So, so mm-hmm. this was a part of your culture. This evangelical purity culture growing up and all that stuff. Yes. And did you did you have a purity ring? And yes. A, a true love waits card that you signed yes i did i did lose the purity ring Mm. both figuratively and literally (laughs) not not like i was thinking in my head (laughs) how can i make this joke how can i make this yeah like unrelated incidents but i think it was sort of a a prophetic kind of losing of the purity ring and but yeah i had a purity (laughs) ring i had a 
like a certificate I signed when I was 12 or something, you know, when I was like, yeah, sex, ah, who wants that, you know? And then like a year later, I was like, you know, <laughs> never mind. All oh, of wait. Us. All <laughs> of us. <laughs> oh, okay. I get it. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. So purity ring card, whole meal deal. What would you, what would you call for those of us? Because I find that most Catholics have no clue what's going on in the evangelical world other than music and uh i don't know like cool stage design other than that catholics are pretty clueless with that what 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 is purity culture and i mean purity culture is kind of the term has emerged i think out of criticism of this sort of phenomenon but basically like in the it really sort of took off in the 90s right when i was what how old are you guys i think we're like the very, um, i'm 36 I'm 35. Yeah, I'm 35, right? Okay, yes, because the other day you dropped a JTT reference on a podcast, (laughs) and I was like, okay, you have to be born in like a two-year window for that to be relevant. So we are the same age. That was a deep dive there. but So yeah, in the 90s, I think the true love waits thing really kind of took off. And um, so yeah, and there are more kind of bizarre... in you know kinds of purity culture there's these thing called purity balls that, that was this was never part yeah you can make you could you could just make a joke later but <laughs> let me finish my sentence so oh, so purity awesome. balls <laughs> but i never experienced firsthand um so but they're kind of like dances where um girls come with their fathers and like pledge to their fathers their i don't know it's I've really bizarre yeah. and weird and yeah. Um, I pledge to you, Father, my virginity. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we, can we edit the way this is being spoken? I'm, I'm right, feeling like exactly. a creeper and not like a good dad anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so that's sort of a more b- bizarre example, I think. But yeah, I think that there there's a, there's a lot of rhetoric there where you would, you would hear kind of at youth group or, you know, just on, I heard a lot of it just at, on, on campus in college, you know, where you kind of, like I remember once like being in a, um, in a van with girls on my dorm floor and one of them was talking like, Oh, you know, if just imagine yourself on your wedding day, you're wearing this beautiful white dress, you know, and everyone's kind of like blissing out sort of picturing this. And, and then she's like, no, imagine a red handprint everywhere. A guy has touched you. <laughs> Isn't that so bizarre? It's just kind of, it's kind of like disturbing. And, you know, I was like, oh, well, I'd have a nice red dress, right? Because at the time, you know, I wasn't a virgin anymore. And that was sort of my defense mechanism was to like be a little in your face about it, you know, um, yeah. even though I felt like garbage, right? Because, right. yeah. So, I mean, I think sex was sort of talked about like premarital sex was talked about as like the worst thing you could do. Like it was Mm -hmm. in my mind, there was no worst thing you could do. You know, I had an experience when I was really young, when the, the daughter of our pastor at the little Bible church, we went to pregnant and she was like, had to sort of confess it in front of the congregation. And it was just like a mess. And, you know, and so I, that really kind of was branded in my brain, like that this, I really honestly thought like that was sort of the worst thing you could do. And the big problem though, I think with the concept of purity as it exists in this kind of, in this kind of culture is that once you lose it, it's not something you can get back. Right. So it -hmm. it really puts, um, especially a girl or a woman's moral worth in her virginity. And once, you know, there's like almost this total, 
like ontological shift that happens. Like once you are no longer a virgin, you're this other kind of person, this other class entirely, you know, whereas I think for guys, there was a lot of emphasis on like, you know, but it it tended to be taught. It tended to be talked about more like as a behavior, like don't stumble, you know, like don't do this. Whereas for a girl who had sex, it was very much about like, what you are, not what you do. That's interesting. um, I think you're one of the lines in your articles that I think really nailed it for me was when you said that um, purity and chastity and all that stuff, purity was this ideal that you were kind of born with and you just had to maintain it. And all these things are coming at you to take it away from you rather than this notion of virtue, which is something that you're grown in or you're, you start at a disordered state. And the idea is the ordering of your sexual drives and passions and desires and responsibilities and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact opposite, literally, of what Christians were being told and what Christian youth were being told forever. It was like, here's this precious thing called virginity, and it 100% identifies that with sexual mm-hmm. or with purity. Virginity, purity were basically the same thing. And mm-hmm. don't you dare lose it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right. So, I mean, of course you're right because you're quoting me. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, go uh, on. And then yeah, uh, yeah um, oh shoot, I was going to say, oh yeah. So another sort of um, consequence of this, which I see in my students, um, is that they very much have this perception of the body and bodily life as bad and sort of inherently sinful, which results in this weird sort of Gnosticism where – you know, I, I wrote about this phenomenon, I think last year, um, about how a lot of my students who were, you know, raised in the church didn't have a belief in the bodily resurrection because that idea was distasteful to them because the body is really like, that's the part of you that's sinful. And so you have to kind of shed that. Right. And I, I think that that, that idea very much comes from, I think the, um, this emphasis on, or this reduction of, purity in a biblical sense to just sexual purity because the bible talks about purity it's true but in a much more holistic sense and you know it's a purity is it has to do with the will you know it has to do with all aspects of one life not just sexuality although it includes that so um yeah i think it's it's done a number on a lot of a lot of people i um have a uh hipster protestant pastor buddy of mine who uh, says that, like one thing that he sees that is kind of a difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is that within the Protestant Church you you obviously have like have that um, lack of the magisterium and within and and with like in like Protestant c- culture it's actually re- replaced by the book publishers and like Christian like music artists like they are the ones who kind of to determine here are the things we're going to talk about here's what's important right now and it kind of and like i like two feet entrenched in that world for a bit when i was in high school and so i, I kind of like when you start to talk about like what that was like i'm like that's right and then i kind of th- thought back to like 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 his one like his comment about that and it made me think like did this all just like happen because people just wanted to like write books about it and did that just like create this weird subculture of like of like a fake under uh, like a real like fake under 
understanding of what real purity actually is. Yeah, well, I I do think that I mean that's really that's really interesting. I think it's probably bigger than that though because I I think that in many ways it's it's a reaction against the sort of hypersexualization yeah, of our sure. culture, sure. Especially you know, during that, that time time period. Exactly, right. right. Like there I think there was almost this kind of panic like what do we do? What do we tell our young people, right? Like how do we like clearly there's something kind of wrong here. We want them, you know, not to have sex till they're married. So how can we like motivate them to do that? <clears throat> not like in a sinister or like manipulative way mm-hmm. necessarily, but, yeah. um, you know, cause that's something I try to sort of remember. I think, you know, even though, you know, this, this kind of stuff has caused me a lot of pain in my life. I'm also like, you know, trying to remember that it's it, in many ways it comes from like not, not horrible intentions or just sort of a kind of a helplessness, I think, in, in kind of the face of the tide of where this stuff has gone, you know. And I mean, I feel it now, too, as a parent because I'm like, you know, one of the things I worry about a lot is how, how can I possibly raise kids who will have a healthy view of sexuality, you know, in this culture where you've kind of got these two extremes, right? And it's so hard to find kind of a healthy middle ground. And I'm here, you know, I'm hearing a lot more criticism of purity culture from within Christianity, but it's only been honestly for me in, um, in discovering Catholic theology of sexuality that I've found a compelling positive vision of sexuality, not just one that's kind of repudiating things that are, that are bad or exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is, and we had a couple people on the show who kind of live this, the deconstruction post-Christian, yeah, you know, uh, you know, falling away, from and it's mostly evangelical Christianity kind of stuff, and you do hear criticism from that viewpoint. But their their viewpoint is kind of you before you went into the Catholic Church. It's this now I'm a progressive. I'm you know they're kind of anything except you know everything's okay except you know a lack of consent and then right. that's it. Um, and they, they I feel like having someone like yourself who's and uh, what's that, Nancy, is it Piercy? Yeah, Love Nancy Piercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love Thy Body. I thought that was, uh, so I, after reading your article, I went out and I bought like everything I could that you recommended on on Kindle, and then I never read it, but I own it. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the first step. That's a catching fox's way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that notion that I've always seen with my like friends who were, who were non-Catholic Christians who were super into scripture. And super, you know, marriages or sex is for marriage, and they always understood that, but they didn't understand what sex was for. Right. Like, like they knew exactly. it was the thing that's done in marriage, but what is it for? And, you know, the most positive that you would get were those people who would talk about the pleasure of sex and how it's just, you know, the sign of love and all that. And the Catholic side, I don't, I don't know. It, so it always seemed to me like there was a um, an understanding of like in the Protestant world, it was very strongly abstinence. And at least in the Catholic world, for those who knew their faith, I read the catechism, it was abstinence was a part of this thing called chastity. And if you just read the few articles on the virtue of chastity, like they're really excellent articles, talks about laws of growth that sometimes all too often involve fall and sin and all this stuff. But that's how you grow, right? That's how you grow. where instead I think th- these kind of two presentations, this abstinence is just saying no until you're ready to say yes and 
all this stuff it left you it left you almost deifying the sexual act um and and, and giving it the, the doing exactly what the world was doing but with religious garb which is you are now exalting sex but you're just saying yeah but it's so sacred we need to keep it within marriage whereas the secular world was exalting sex saying now do it all the time because it's so awesome high right five. right Oh yeah. I think that's totally true. So it's, I mean, it's fundamentally rules-based, right? And so you would also, you also hear this kind of, this kind of language where, you know, at, at all these sort of like youth group gatherings or, you know, when I was an undergraduate, we would always have like the sex speaker, you know, right around Valentine's yeah, day yeah. would come in and be like, don't do it, <laughs> you know, but then after you're married, it's amazing. Do it all the time. Right. So you get this kind of message of, you know, Whatever you, whatever you have to do, don't ever have sex. Sex is, you know, sex is bad. Sex is scary. It'll mess you up. You'll become like this lollipop everyone's been sucking on or one of these, you know, sort of weird little <laughs> illustrations they would use. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, but once you're married, you know, then, you all know, are off. yeah, suddenly. So, and I, and so I, and I've talked to, you know, I've, I've talked to friends who've grown up in this sort of tradition who have then really struggled in their um, married sexual life because they just have this sense of like deep shame about sexuality that they can't suddenly just kind of like flip a switch and, you know, um, so yeah, I never heard any, any messaging about the need to, aside from, you know, okay, don't, don't commit adultery, but there was never really any, a sense of like, okay, you could still like misuse a spouse sexually, you know, you could still sort of you can do sex badly, you know, in marriage. It's not just like, it was very much just like, don't do it. And then once you're married, you'll be fine. Like just get to marriage and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. And so that also sets up these really unrealistic expectations. Like, you know, that you're going to get married and just sort of get laid whenever you want. Um, which I think can also be sort of frustrating for people who, you know, get married and realize, Oh shoot, I'm married to a human being that has different desires than I do, or sometimes is sick, you know, and I don't just get to like have sex whenever I, I still have to exercise a sense of, you know, discipline and, and, and continence. And so the, the framework for chastity, because every, it's a virtue that everyone is called to. And then the particularities of that are related to your state in life, but everyone is called to live chastely, right? It's not, that's another benefit, I think, for that model rather than the purity model, because purity is just about getting to marriage and then the conversation's over. How do you, I would say like talking to youth and ministers today, we got a lot of youth and ministers that listen to our show. Like I always tried to paint it within the context of chastity. When I was the guy hired once a year to come and give the chastity talk around Valentine's day, it was always, I always tried to tie it around this notion of, like JP two love to love versus to use in love and responsibility. Like that was always my framework. I feel like a lot of people know what it's like to be used, but not a lot of people know what it's like to be loved. And so that was the kind of way that I would approach it. If you're talking to, especially in the wake of Brock Turner, I bring up Brock Turner a lot. His case hangs over my head. Do you remember who Brock Turner was? Is this the, the swimmer guy? Yeah, he was yeah. the dude that yeah that was from uh, the Dayton area, and he My hometown. I think he was at I, I think he was in Stanford or something, and he raped a woman who was basically passed out from alcohol consumption at a frat party. Took her out back and raped her, and the argument was, "Come on, judge, my son made a mistake. Don't throw away 
his whole life for these, you know, nine minutes of, of a mistake. Right. And, um, and you have, so here's a couple of things that like feminism has pointed out to me how so often there's like a state of fear that women live in that I don't experience. I, I never walk to my car at night, late at night with my keys between my fingers, ready to jab someone in the neck. I've, you know, I don't look over my, I'm aware of my surroundings, but I'm not living in fear. Um, like things like that, that I never even noticed before. Um, and then you have like youth group where girls post youth group will say things like, you know, I hated that the modesty list was 10 times longer for women than it is for men. And, you know, and I would try to explain, yeah, well, men are more sexually wired visually and whatever. And that always fell kind of on deaf ears. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just trying to struggle. What what would be, how how can we combat the worst of this purity culture in in a better way? Because, like, I, I I mean, me and Luke have talked about how in our, you know, purity talks or whatever, chastity talks, we don't ever talk about consent because that's already implied. We're talking about a much harder, much more austere, you know, moral goal. And but then we don't talk about it. Then you got the kid who got drunk for the first time in college, and he's doing terrible things to the girl who's passed out next to him because he was never sat down and explained. You don't do that. All right. I, I don't know. How do you? How would you approach approach these very real issues, kind of today? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this this is something I'm still very much thinking through. Right. So, yeah. I did a like last March. I gave a talk on this. Um, at Notre Dame for the, there was a pre-synod conference. So I gave a talk on this to a room full of bishops. I might've said things that <laughs> it's yeah. one of the advantages of being a convert is that I don't really know, like to be intimidated by a room full of bishops. Like I don't really know well <laughs> enough. And well now with everything that's going down, I'm like, Oh, well, I'm glad I said what I said. But anyway, <laughs> um, did you call them a room full of white walkers coming <laughs> to destroy us all from the North? I did not. No, okay. I did okay. not. Have, I did not have all the info. So, um, but so the way I sort of set it up in that talk was, you know, I think, it, I think it might be helpful to talk in terms of paradigms, like, okay, here are kind of, here's sort of the stories on offer right now, what you're being told about sex. Here's kind of the, the maybe consumerist paradigm, right? Which I think is sort of the hookup culture, the, um, like what you're describing where the only kind of, um, the, the only sort of line between good sex and bad sex is consent. Right. So then that raises the issue of consent where you're like, okay, this like consent is absolutely essential. Like this is important as a baseline, but, but there, there's also more than just that, because basically that, that paradigm says the, the, the only thing that, the only thing that makes sex good is that it's not rape. Right. That's a pretty low bar. Right. I mean, there's more that we can say about, about what, how to live sexuality well. Right. And so there's good criticisms that can be made of the consumerist paradigm, but then also there can be a highlighting of what's good about it is that it does emphasize that this, this is important. This is fundamental. Right. And then there's like the purity paradigm, um, which is what we've been talking about. So there's, what's good about it is that it at least sort of it raises the issue that, okay, there is a, a divine order to which we're accountable, right? Like God is in the picture and we have to begin the conversation of what, how do we, how do we live sexuality well in, in a view, you know, with God in view, but then it's ultimately not a good model for the reasons we've been describing. It's sort of legalistic, it's rule-based. It leads to this like damaged goods phenomenon. It has a fundamentally, I think, unchristian view of, 
um, purity and grace. So, and then I think the, the Catholic paradigm is, um, I called it like an incarnational paradigm because, um, you have what one thing you've described that you have the person in view, right? So drawing on that kind of personalist norm that you see in John Paul's work, where you're always thinking about the other person as a full human being, right? And so you're not just thinking about your own needs and your own desires, but also like, how can I affirm sort of the dignity and personhood of the other? Um, but then I also think that the the Catholic paradigm alone, really, honestly, holds true the connection between sex and life, right? Because I think that has to be central. I think um, I think we have been taught to forget about our own fertility and um, the connection between sex and life because that's been that that connection's been severed in our imaginations. So I think it's really important because the more I think we're led to kind of contemplate how you know sex is the means of the transmission of human existence that adds a kind of responsibility and weight to it that's important, right? So um, how do you live out sexuality when you think about personhood, when you think about life out of a respect for the life that may come from a sexual encounter um, and also love, like love in the sense of self-gift because, you know, if I mean, one of the nice things about the the kind of theology of the body model is that, you know, because the body is the person, the body expresses the person, you can't have sort of depersonalized sex, right? You can't just sort of like let someone use your body, you know, or you can't just use someone's body, like you're using a person. And so I think drawing that out into the picture and why that, that I think just because those things make, the Christian Christian teaching about sex and why it belongs where it does makes sense. You know, I mean, you can take it or leave it. It's up to people to decide not to live that way, but at least there's a connection between, you know, it's not just an arbitrary rule that Christianity has taught, you know, for two millennia that sex belongs in the context of marriage, but it's because of its connection to life and personhood and self gift. Right. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough, but I think it's, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of, it's like this holistic paradigm, you know, and seeing a person not just as this like autonomous speck in the world, but as part of an interconnected whole, right. As part of, part of a cosmic order. Um, then that, that I think begins to sort of draw this alternative picture that I think is really, honestly, it's beautiful, you know, and I think, it calls us to something higher, you know, it calls us to sort of a higher living at a higher pitch, um, when it comes to sexuality. And I do think young people are hungry for that. You know, I think they're hungry for, um, meaning and purpose and, um, heroic virtue, I guess. But also, you know, and also like, Hey, if you mess up, you know, or whatever, like, that's okay. You know, like what, what matters is who you are now and what you're doing today. Right. Okay. So you had sex with your boyfriend last year. 
that doesn't matter. What matters is who you are right now, right? Like you can, you can still choose to live chastely, you know, right now. It's not like you lost your one chance, right? You're just sort of in this other class now. I really do think that's the most dangerous thing of it all. I was just about to say that. It departs from, yeah, yeah, it departs from grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it just kind of healing and healing. Yeah. We know, we know that there are things that cannot be undone. Right. And virginity has been since the church fathers praised, um, you know, and, and it's one of the signs of the church as those who willfully, uh, renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven men and women both and and they they are called to this higher state and all this good stuff but at the same time when you're dealing with high school students or college students in a hyper promiscuous culture right and your response is to make them feel like shit so that they don't like it's such a fear-based approach it's like oh my god don't don't lose your virginity don't lose your virginity oh you lost your virginity oh <laughs> you, you shouldn't have done that now you know like yeah. but it's so fear-based like mm-hmm. how do parents like i can understand a father or a mother afraid of a sexually active teenager yeah. but to then build an entire like an entire paradigm around this like a standard that not even they could could keep up you know and to to hide grace the only way the only way people, teenagers that I've seen, like, right, obviously are very well educated in the church's teaching on sex and sexuality from an early age that they've, like, when, when they're kind of going through puberty, they've heard these things and in a good way, the Catholic way, right, and kind of embraced them. But the other is people who have tasted and seen the kind of uh, broken cisterns of the world. Like, there's no water here. There's no goodness here. There's... I've I've done all the things that the world says this will make me happy. It was consensual the whole way down, and it's left me even more empty. Those are the people that I see actually have the better chance of staying chaste after that, you know, that that conversion because they've seen the bottom of the pit. And but if you kind of paint it in this like, don't don't you dare lose it. Oh, you lost it. Oh God. <laughs> then it's almost like, well, I guess I have to stay down here. Yes. Well, and that's a huge problem. And so that's sort of what happened to me, right? Because once, once you've lost it, well, there's no, there's no real sort of incentive to not just doing it more, right? Because, you know, if you, if you're getting told that you are sort of damaged goods and there's nothing you can do to kind of reclaim that or to be made whole again, then you know, like I lost a lot of respect for myself. And that's when I actually really began to, I think, I don't know, like act out in more sort of problematic ways sexually because I felt my, a sense of my own worthlessness. And so that's how I, I let myself be treated as worthless because that's what I thought I was. I got, I got a couple more questions about I don't know, like in terms of Catholicism today, I feel like our biggest obstacles are um gay marriage transgender rights and the rise of of feminism insofar as they directly challenge the catholic notion of sexual morality which is itself a symbol of you know the goodness and dignity of the human person the destiny towards which we're called the bridal relationship between christ and the church like these are no small issues 
Right. Even though I think it can be like we, I don't know. I feel like, okay. So I feel like the more I study transgenderism, cause I'm trying to understand it and how it all of a sudden in like two years became the most important thing on the face of the earth and how everyone is talking about it constantly as if it's the majority of the population. Then I read an article uh, at Brown University that Brown University took off there. It was a published research article, a sociology paper, and they took it off their webpage um, after being, you know, it's a publicly available journal article, um, meticulously researched by a woman who is pro-choice, feminist, you know, all this stuff. But she was exploring how teens, why is it that teenagers today are becoming reporting as trans so quickly and so many and she essentially located it down in in america and she essentially located it to whether or not there is someone who's gay or someone experiences homosexual desires along the you know whatever spectrum there or there's someone who's a a trans self-identified as trans within their community and they're active on tumblr (laughs) like she identified (laughs) was like tumblr and maybe instagram and a couple others but it was mostly tumblr that it's like all the wrong information is out there and then you just have this explosion. Like you start off one year with one kid in a group of 10 who identifies as trans. And then in, in, by the end of like two years, you'll have like four or five out of 10 people identifying the same thing. And uh, she went to explore and she realized this is literally, this is not a, a, a phenomena of, uh, you know, gender dysphoria. This is just straight up social pressure and manipulation and things like that and misinformation and she was ripped apart and they took down her article and essentially tried to delete it but you know you know the power of the internet um and so like i'm trying to struggle with all this stuff like how do we present the catholic faith in an age like this this is something the roman empire i mean they had widespread homosexual activity they had no problem with people engaging in homosexual acts but for them marriage was between one man and one woman and it was for procreation you know, the furthering of your estate or whatever it is. And it just amazes me that our culture is so far beyond that. That this this has to be, I feel like, the the ground where where the church loses, you know, I mean, like in Canada, they're already restricting speech and all that stuff. I don't know. I don't even know how to address these issues at a wider, other than, you know, I mean, I know how to talk about what, what I believe, but I don't know how to build a bridge as it were to those who just straight up reject it. I mean, I think there's a sense in which if, you know, if someone is really like a full on ideologue, uh, there's probably no bridge building to be done. Um, I mean, I think in some ways, I mean, you know, there's bridge building to be done, I guess. Like I think what is required is um, uh, a thoughtful and charitable articulation of the Catholic view Um again and again, as many times as we need. So I think that we need sort of a response. Um, but I guess what is worrying is what you're sort of describing. Like I'm, I'm very much worried about how it, how hard it is to even get good science on this stuff because it's being squashed. There was another guy in, in a, at a UK university. I can't remember. I think his last name's Caspian. I only remember that because I'm a Narnia fan, but um, <laughs> I believe he's he, a prince. Yes, he's a prince. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was he was studying dragons that were turning into humans, and then that made him interested in transgender stuff. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, so he <laughs> he was he wanted to study the phenomenon of sex change regret or people who had reversed, you know, right. sex change. And so his 
his research was approved a few years ago, but then he realized he had to sort of like slightly reconfigure it because there was kind of a category of, of folks he was missing. And so he, he kind of changed it and then reapplied. And this time it was rejected basically just because it's sort of politically, you know, now it's, it's not, you, you're not supposed to do that kind of research, which I think is just, it's really bad. Right. I mean, if there's anything we need good science on, it's this stuff because it's like, clearly there are people who are in distress. Right. And then the kinds of treatment that they're being offered that should be rigorously studied in terms of its effectiveness, just as in any other kind of, um, you know, medical or psychological kind of clinical treatments would be. So, um, I'm, I'm there was worried like a about that. In Canada yeah. who ran a gender dysphoria clinic and he has never once he recommended gender transition surgeries and all this stuff. So he, you know, but the only thing he said was it's the position of our clinic to urge caution when we mix, mess with hormone therapies for children. And the Canadian government shut him down oh, just for saying, yeah. like, he did not in any way, shape or form even. But it's like the mere appearance of violating the new orthodoxy. Uh, you know, it just it's such a swift condemnation. And it like, have you noticed how transgenderism as an ism contradicts feminism so much uh yes like i mean the whole point like like i am a woman i have a unique contribution that no man can silence or take away from me and it's like well now i'm a now i'm a woman and i can identify it with because i change my body or not even that right or now it just a speech act you know can can be you know just by saying i am a woman without even any sort of physical change Right. I mean, that's enough to be to be a woman. Right. Which it's it has changed incredibly quickly. So I was in the mid let's see, in the like 2007 or so, like not that long ago, right? You know, 10 years, 11 years ago, I was doing doctorate work in feminist theory. And the transgender stuff was very much like on the it wasn't on the scene, really. It was just sort of, you know, it wasn't very prominent and. You know, we were reading a lot of like post-structuralist French feminist theory, and there's this there's this kind of famous essay that Jacques Derrida, where he kind of writes from the perspective of a woman, or maybe it's Levinas or some, I think it's I think it's Derrida. Um, and we, you know, we actually had this discussion about how you can't just do that, right? You can't just sort of, as a man, declare that you are a woman and kind of, you know, just through through the exercise of language, kind of suddenly inhabit that space and da da da. da. You know, and fast forward a few years, and this was in like a very sort of very secular, very feminist graduate program, you know, and now the kind I mean the feminist theory that I studied and specialized in is has really fallen out of favor because it's now seen as too essentialist or too binary, because it really kind of holds womanhood as a meaningful category. And now the the trend is toward plurality and fluidity and yeah, I think it's it it is really from a feminist perspective, it's really worrying, you know, um, and this would get me, you know, I'm sure there's already a Tumblr now that will be made some sort of list of trans exclusionary radical feminists, also known as TERFs. My name will be added to that um, because you're not. Yeah, you can't you can't sort of say that you can't say like, yeah, OK, like a person with a dick is not a woman. Like, I'm sorry. That's just you can't just, you know, a woman isn't just a sort of subjective experience. Like there's an objective reality 
to embodiment, right? And that's the thing, right? That's the thing that everyone wants to deny. So Right. They're just words. You're assigned a sex at birth. When I, I never, I've heard people say that forever in this, or not forever, last year or whatever on this debate. And then hearing like, oh no, by saying you're assigned, meaning the doctor assigns you a sex, but that's not what you are. Right. That's like, what? Right. Well, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of kind of absurd philosophical inconsistencies about that stuff too. Right. So I hear, you know, I, I asked, I had some students a couple of years ago where they were using that language and I was like, okay, so let me get this straight. Like, so sexual orientation is innate. And they were like, yes, absolutely. You're born gay if you're gay, whatever. And I was like, but, but you're assigned a sex at birth. Like, how does that work? How can sex not be innate, but sexual orientation is innate? Like, that makes no sense, literally. Like, you can have an innate attraction to something that's not innate, right? That doesn't make, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And it begins to break down. Um, so there are, What yeah. was their response? Not, they were just sort of like, you know, they didn't, they didn't really have a, they didn't really have a response. Yeah. I was listening to a guy on Joe Rogan talk about, no, Derrida, remember what he talked about and like male and female are just social constructs. And even, and, and Joe Rogan's like, no, like it's, it's what we call like fine. Like part of it is, but it's what we call those who are born with a dick versus those who aren't like, <laughs> there's a thing that's tied to the body. Like, are we just getting rid of biology? He's like, there's no such thing as biology. That's just invented. That also is a social contract. And he goes, but a dick is real, right? Like, I'm not just making right. Well, but I mean, like, that's, feel- that is that is the only result, though, of a culture. Well, like, sorry. I mean, this is a very complicated issue, obviously. But I feel like one part of this is that, like, this is the result of two to, of two to 300 years of like thought of that like man can conquer anything yeah even our bodies yeah and so like th- this is kind of like because it's kind of weird like how fast it's all come about right and like the to the point of where now even like biology doesn't really matter because it's quote-unquote been conquered so you're free to kind of i don't know so i just kind of interjected that out of nowhere and that might not make sense but like i've been wrestling <laughs> with like that idea of just like of like how we have pretty much like this is like one of of like this is our new um i don't see i mean cuz this is going to kind of sound odd but i don't see a really big difference between like like what's going on here and a lot of the manifest destiny stuff this idea of we have to, we we have to conquer this area because it is our god-given responsibility and like god can be however you, you know whatever like your god is yeah. this this like real um this real divine call that like we have to like conquer this area and i think we've kind of like sealed the deal only biology now pretty much that's not crazy or am i just you're crazy out Luke. of nowhere you're crazy well i think we all sound crazy like i mean <laughs> well but like how did you how did, like how much of this is like how much of this that we are ex that we are kind of experiencing is it that the people who tend to like have the megaphone right now this is what they are this is what they are screaming about or is this like or now we in the like minority because this is what we believe and think man i don't know i don't know i i do think it's a vocal minority but at the same time i think the 
majority of people who are like, okay, like they, people don't think what sex is for. They just know they want it and want it more than probably what they're getting, most people. And so the liberation of sex, I mean, just think about that. The liberation of sex from the bonds of marriage, if you want to call it heteronormativity or whatever. But by doing that, it promises you to have more sex. What human being after the fall doesn't think that that's in some way, shape, or form a a quote-unquote good thing? You know what I mean? Like this appeals to all of our base instincts, right? And so the the message at the very basic thing, like it's not just that Catholicism I don't think is going to get, you know, much play today in our culture, but neither is Aristotelianism or Platonism because they all advocate discipline and the harnessing and harmonization of your interior faculties. And our culture today is indulge. Like the true enlightenment is indulging, not harnessing. Right, because that's seen in kind of a post-Freudian era as repressive and kind of right. pathological, right? So there's no longer this sense that that's, that's actually the way to an ordered and peaceful life. It's no, you know, you must, if you're not getting, you know, your dollies off enough, then you're, you're actually damaging yourself. Like you're, a, you're going to be a repressed freak and you're going to sort of lash out in pathological ways, you know, that there's this kind of view of the passions or this kind of, I don't know, like the steam that needs to be let off every once in a while, rather than something that must sort of come under the sway of one's will and one's reason through careful habit and continual effort. So it's a very different way of thinking about the passions and like the role they play in the good life. And also the the shift from an emphasis on the universal to the particular, because, you know, you'll hear people say like, oh, well, what about biology? But then you can always sort of say, well, biology has in itself natural variation, right? So there are, you know, there are cases of people born with sexual ambiguity, right? Or conditions that um, give them sort of atypical morphology and that sort of thing. And so then that becomes like an appeal to overturn the sort of general rule that you can't speak in, in kind of, um, in categories, universal categories about sex, because there are very rare, but nonetheless exceptions to those. Um, Mm, So because intersex exists, which, yeah, because intersex exists, therefore all the others can find their place. But right. It's weird though. though. I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. Well, that like, I think because what I'm kind of wrestling with, with, with like all that stuff right now is that like yes yeah, so like you have people who can be born with like both sex organs or they can kind of have the traits uh like you know like of a man but really have the xx chromosome i believe or you know and but like those individuals don't typically identify with the gender that they were raised to think that they have so it it implies that the bulk of the trans that like a that like people who do identify as trans it's more like a psychological issue, so they have this like issue that they then have a, that they then have like a biological um answer for, which is really weird. Like I don't know when that has ever happened. So you're saying you're saying the majority of 
trans people is more of like gender dysphoria. It's a psychological condition. It's not from that what I've heard with, that, that that tends not to that be born yeah. with genetic issues. Yeah. It's, but, yeah. yeah. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So and then they, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like a really weird response to it. If you look at and and, and again, like there's some people who are going to find this horribly like offensive. I don't know how else to put this though. Be, because like those who do have the biological issues where that actually is a thing where like there there is like a disorderment a like disordered aspect to the body with regards to their gender they don't have that doesn't automatically mean that they then have the psychological trans um it, like yeah complications right so that yeah those are totally different kind of categories because so that the trans phenomenon would be where there isn't a biological irregularity but there's you know an ordered body that is female or male, mm-hmm. but then there's a sense of of a mismatch between, I don't know, the word you want to use is the psyche or the kind of the true self doesn't match the body, yeah. right? So the body is sort yeah. of yeah. wrong in that way, but it's not it's not actually right, dis disordered. So yeah, so the the kind of intersect phenomenon is is separate. Um, but I think it's often played as a card when someone says like, oh, well, you know, there's male and female, like it's pretty simple. And someone will say, well, no, actually it's, it's more complicated than that. Even sex itself is a spectrum. So why shouldn't, you know, gender be, or why can't these categories be kind of mixed and matched? Right. Um, but I mean, I think they're conflating two very different things. Um, well, and it's, I mean, nature, I mean, it's so, it's so painfully obvious that sex is binary because that's what's fruitful, right? Like, the, and, and that's Christopher West's whole thing about pollen all over our faces. Trying to have <laughs> yeah, sex with us. Uh, so many jokes I wanted to say that I refrained from. <laughs> Eighth grade Michael Gormley kept oh, his mouth shut. I'm so but, proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Um, but the whole notion of like there you can't have more than one or more than two because then the the biodiversity completely crumbles like to have a third gender that's a that's a true sexual variant like who do they serve like or who do they connect with right there's this beautiful biodiversity i think as far as i can tell a fish discovered it in scotland the first According to a report four weeks ago in the press on the 20th of October this year, took place in a lake in Scotland 385 million years ago. It was then, according to this new discovery, that two fish came together to perform the first instance of sexual reproduction known to science. It is now official. Sex was invented in Scotland. (laughs) Once you add that to that single malt whiskey, I think we need nothing else to do. Anyway, until then, all life, as we know, it propagated itself asexually by cell division budding. Like, it it is truly a remarkable way that life diversifies itself is through the sexual encounter of a male and a female. And to deny that, I feel like you can't deny anything more basic. You're denying the very body that you have, and you're demanding that everyone else, through legal pressure, uh, agree with with the denial of the body. 
Like this is Descartes on acid. Exactly. This yeah. Is, yep. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is yeah. Gnosticism couldn't even have dreamed of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. You know, this is very much an objectification of the body and instrumentalization of the body as this sort of neutral material tool that can be sort of shaped and wielded totally according to one's will, right? There's no sort of givenness to the body to which we are accountable or, or that we are asked to sort of live in, in harmony with. Let me let me change modes a little bit. So depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, it's so confusing and so frustrating because you feel like the rules are changing every other day. The rules of language, the rules of human speech, like it's just all changing all the time. Um, now, I want to go back and talk a little bit about feminism, if you don't mind. That's all right. That's sure. All right. I was actually talking to Luke. Just kidding. Um, but when, <laughs> so what you were mentioning, like the type of gender theory that you were taught, what, what type of gender theory was that? You know, you hear of like first wave feminism, second wave, third wave. Can you kind of break down a little sure. bit of that? Yeah. Okay. Us? So, um, well, when I was in graduate school, I was doing, I was studying like postmodern, post-structuralist feminist theory. Um, so specifically Lucie Rigore, who's a, a French philosopher. Um, and so she's, she was, you know, began sort of writing in the seventies and eighties. So she would have been, she's not a second wave feminist, but that's the era. Um, so first wave feminists are, you know, sort of in the early 20th century, primarily concerned with um, getting women the right to vote. So with the suffrage movement and it grew out of the temperance movement because women were very active in that. And they sort of realized they can kind of politically organize effectively. And so then they sought the vote. And then there was kind of this period of sort of dormancy. And then the second wave hit in the um, the beginning of the 1970s, late 1960s. And that was focused a lot more on um, reproductive rights, especially that's when I think that abortion became very much um, the kind of primary platform of of feminism and so there were different sort of it took on a different kind of tone and focus and um then kind of have third wave feminism which comes a generation or so later and that that tends to be more focused on um like multiculturalism and intersectionality theory you begin to see more sort of gender theory and queer theory coming out of that where there's more of an emphasis on kind of gender fluidity or um, the choice of women to sort of choose whatever kind of life they wanted to live, whereas second wave feminism tended to be much more kind of a rejection against domesticity. You know, you have like the feminine mystique and these kind of feminist books being written about um, being free from the domestic sphere and really kind of having um, equality with men in sort of the professional sphere. And so I was studying um, French feminist theory, which um, the theorist I was working with most, she's, she's interesting because she takes um, sexual difference very seriously. And her basic argument is that um, humanity has always been sort of thought of, even though we have this underlying two-ness to humanity, right? There's the, there's the woman and there's the man. Humanity has always been thought of kind of in terms of the male only. And so in as much as woman has ever been thought, she's just kind of this, this sort of half formed kind of mirror for a man. And she's 
she's kind of not thought of in her own right um, or kind of as a fully formed human subject, but is sort of the object to man's subject, I guess. And so she, her kind of, her interest was how do we then take sexual difference seriously and actually begin to think about human culture and humanity itself along those lines. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I was really drawn to feminism to begin with because I wanted to believe that, that being a woman was meaningful, that there was something important there. Um, but then I kind of, the further I got into feminism, like feminist theory, then you get all these tensions where all of a sudden feminist theory is like, well, how can we even really speak of womanhood as a category? Because there's this suspicion of essentialism or kind of a universal idea of woman. So they they want to reject that. But at the same time, that kind of creates a tension in feminism itself, because how can you reject the idea that there is an essence, an underlying essence to womanhood, while also have a movement centered on womanhood? So... Um, so the French feminists are a little more, <laughs> you know, kind of, I, I liked them more. They took the body seriously. So Irigure was very, you know, she, I actually wrote an essay recently that's coming out in a collection that she edited, um, where I compare her with John Paul II and his theology of the body. Because <laughs> when I started studying the theology of the body, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much like Irigure, but just sort of mm. this Catholic, you know, but taken into kind of a full Catholic context. And so I wrote this essay and she, she got all mad about it because she was like, he stole my ideas. And I was like, well, actually he was writing this at the same time you were writing it. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. but it's really interesting because I, you know, even long before I became Catholic, I was, I was drawn to the type of feminist theory that I think is wow. marked by some of the wow. same things as Catholic thought on theology of the body. So yeah, I think the body matters, right? I mean, I don't think, I do not think it's possible to change one's sex. I just don't think that's possible. It's possible to go through cosmetic procedures to, you know, have the appearance of the opposite sex, but you can't change your sex any more than you can sort of become a different species. You know, that's just not something that's possible because it concerns the whole person, right? I mean, if you have an idea of the human being, as this integrated body soul unity, then, you know, that changes the way you think about all this stuff. Oh man. We're all a bunch of Gnostics. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I, I, I get very concerned that like the time to have these conversations, you know, that, you know, we're a couple decades too late that this is already just such like a massive cultural train. That it's just gonna go, 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 and that has like such like that has such inertia behind it that there is real like no way to have the nuanced conversation that is necessary. Yeah, but well, you don't. What we can't predict though is how it will age, because that's something that I'm really interested in. Because it seems to be a very yeah, true. popular phenomenon among young people, especially college age students. I think. And so it'll be very interesting to see how, you know, how many, like, you know, the people who are 20 now and sort of transitioning to another gender, what are they going to be thinking when they're 40, you know, or they're 30, 50, you know? So I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see what mm -hmm. happens if this, because there, I think historically there are a lot of kinds of, one of the interesting things about kind of, um, that I learned sort of doing feminist studies is that there are 
there are kind of um, pathologies that emerge in particular historical moments that seem to be like an extreme reaction of some kind of aspect of the culture. So like in the Victorian era, you had um, women's hysteria where women would have these sort of like fainting kind of um, sicknesses and these, it seemed to be almost this like pathological extreme of the Victorian idea of womanhood, which was this sort of weak, you know, this weak kind of frail thing. And so it created almost this like pathological exaggeration of that. And then you had in the mid 20th centuries, a rise in agoraphobia or women being afraid to leave the house, which seemed to be this like pathological exaggeration of the expectation that women should be in the house all the time. And then you have like anorexia in the 80s and 90s sort of boomed, which seemed to be this you know, there was suddenly all this emphasis on very like thin models and you know, the fashion industry and the huge proliferation of visual images all the time of really thin women and the kind of homogenization of beauty standards. And then you had this pathological extreme, this excess of women who are actually sort of starving themselves, right? So I kind of wonder sometimes if the trans phenomenon isn't part of that in Is a that, way, like that yeah. it's almost this kind of extreme example of this i this cultural idea we have that you you know that basically the body is whatever you want to make it right and that um you know i think sometimes that people who perhaps identify as trans now it's not because of persistent gender dysphoria but maybe perhaps a deep discomfort with gender norms associated with yeah. you know their and now there's kind of this like other category where you can be sort of this other thing, right? Where, but ironically, that actually really polarizes the categories of male and female and man and woman because now it's like if you're a really feminine man, you must not be a man. Or if you're a really masculine woman, you must not really be, you must really be a man, right? Well, that leaves the kind of territory of what it means to be a man and a woman, like very small and kind of reduced. So it, it also it has it there's it, a lot of irony here worse. exactly right so in some <laughs> yeah, ways there's these totally destroys diversity mm -hmm, right there yeah there's there's come kind of regressive I you know and yeah some kind of like mm -hmm. and you know in, in feminist terms some kind of regressive ideas at work here in terms of yeah what it even means to be a woman so we're we're seeing those categories I think contract rather than expand in kind of a, an ironic way mm. wow yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all your awesomeness. Thank you for being a listener to our show, even if you did start yeah, out listening thanks. to that friend guy. <laughs> Never heard of him. Yeah, well. He has Can't an accent. Can't believe it. No, no kidding. It's you know, cool. It does. He is the me. gateway like, drug I, to our podcast, I, I have realized. <laughs> and he's always like drinking something and going, ah, you know, and he it just is. makes you feel he good. Is like, always. Yeah. There's a man who's, he's very Chestertonian, <laughs> him and his wife. They're very, I just imagine them, like every so often you catch on their Instagram feed or something, they're just smoking a pipe, looking at a, a field of uh, like a garden and tr trees and children playing. And I just feel like if Chesterton was from Australia, he would be in Georgia right now being Matt Fred. Like that's just what he is. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. He is. He's all, you know, he's all right. God, that accent though. Woo. Woo. <laughs> Enough to make a Victorian woman pass out, am I yes. right? Yes, <laughs> swooning, swooning on the couch right now, yeah. You know what's funny? Do you know where that Victorian swooning still endures to this day? This I is do very, 
well, very stupid, but it's where? very true. In comic books, when women are have very strong powers, after they oh. use their powers, they immediately faint. Oh, seriously? Huh. Oh, well, so you have someone like Jean Grey in the classic 90s X-Men. If you watch that cartoon, every time she uses her powerful psychic abilities, she goes, oh, and then it fades. <laughs> yes, every time. Yeah. Strong woman character, she has to faint. That's really interesting. Just like Luke, when me and Luke hang out. This is more from booze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what the male superheroes do. They <laughs> Pass out. <laughs> I have drank five beers. Good night. I can face anything. <laughs> Come at me, Magneto. That snap. <laughs> and I'm down. Man, so you lowered yourself a fellow of the William Penn Honors Program. Well, you know, now, actually, I'm actually the director now. So that's. You're the oh, director. Even worse. I know. Yeah. Oh, wow. So what, what is it like to be a student within the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University? Well, you, um, you read through the great books of human history, and you think alongside the greatest minds that have been wrestling with a lot of these questions we've been talking about. Like, what is a human being? What is the body? What is the body's relationship to the soul? What is a good life? And you read the greats over four years while you also just major in whatever you want. So you get this amazing, rich liberal arts foundation that complements pretty much any field of study. So it's a really wonderful opportunity. And it's been amazing to teach in it, um, especially in this time of my life, because I've mm. it's been so wonderful to be a new Catholic and reading through the great books mm-hmm. and getting this kind of second education and yeah, it's been wonderful. What are the great books in the Middle Ages? Oh, I'm teaching the Middle Ages right now. So we're doing, let's see. Okay, so we we did like Pseudo-Dionysus, Boethius, the Quran, Beowulf, St. Hildegard's Visions. Um, we're doing the Divine Comedy right now. We did some Aquinas, of course, Bonaventure, Maimonides, Al-Ghazali, Bernard of Clairvaux, Abelard and Eloise. Oh, Abelard and Heloise have got to be the craziest. <laughs> they, they are quite, they're, yeah, they're quite a pair, I have to say. Um, how, how can you go through this stuff if you're an adult and don't have time? Because, like, because, like, I would love to, like, read these books, and I'm just like, I don't have, like, the time to do that is, it's a lot. Like, how can you do, like, it's almost like it has to be your full time Yeah, like, job. yeah, like, yeah, you got to get a job. Any ideas? I would love to, it's just. I'd, I would be all ears. Um, well, you can use self-discipline to read. Okay, what if you don't have that? <laughs> strike one. I've been yeah, listening. I've been listening actually to Dante's Purgatory at night while I fall asleep on LibriVox. Oh, nice. Because LibriVox, nice. you know, has. Mm-hmm. So there's that's one way to do it is actually just to do an audio book because especially the classics are often in public domain and so you can get free. Mm. Nice. You know, and sometimes, I mean, some readers are better than the than others. Mm. So you got to find someone who doesn't have like a really grating Midwestern accent that's just sort of attacking. <laughs> what are you your talking ears, about? But... Those Midwest, you know, what I found is like the hardest part is that. Uh, so like, I, I mean, I, I can find the time to like read these books, but it's more like the step after, like, okay, so then, like, how do I process this on my own? You know, where. where you could talk about it on a podcast. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I, I 
Dum, do that dum. enough. <laughs> you could do like a you could do a book group. I've thought about that, but isn't that weird? No, no book groups are. I just awesome. don't want to be How awkward. Like, hey, everyone, let's come <laughs> and like read these books. No, all right, I'll go back home. Yeah, you're not going to read either. Yeah, me too. Let's let's all stop lying to ourselves and just go see a Marvel movie. <laughs> so I, I'm just about done with I'm just about done with uh with the meditations by um Marcus. Aurelius, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're doing and it I'm right like, now. I want to talk about this. Anyone? No. Nope. All right. Well, see you later. See you you know, later. and I'm <laughs> such like, and I, and I just, I'm like, I, I mean, I, I've, I've honestly like thought about other like chat boards. Oh my, am I a baby boomer? Are there like, uh, like subreddits <laughs> or different things like that that I could go to? But I know that I'm such. I like. Just, I just want to process this out loud. And I'm like, maybe I just need to start. Uh, yeah, Luke. It's called Tumblr. Tumblr, Tumblr. Your handle will be Lonely Classics Wannabe. <laughs> oh no! I mean, I do, I do feel your pain because it is. It's in the discussion that the richness comes out for sure, which is why um, this is why I love teaching this that's, program. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Um, that is you just gotta find. I, I gotta, gotta find some friends, and so you know the meditations. That's easy. It's short. Like there's some of these. You know, say Athanasius on the Incarnation. That's one of my favorites. It's really short. You know, you could just get together some people, want to read it, and then you could talk about it together. Mm. Just mm. gotta, gotta find your people. Sure. Uh, where's your tribe, uh, Luke? Find your too, tribe. They're just way too exhausting. Um, I I do think there's a thing <laughs> to like going back to the classics and how they tie into like Balthasar's idea of having to like relearn. Uh, having to like relearn um to what it means to be christian just because with the whole past few hundred years things have been like kind of like blown to hell and having to okay so like what does it mean to be a christian right now like what does it act what like what does that actually look like i think a lot of the classics off like they really have the like opportunity to uh, to really chew on that question um anywho anywho i could talk to you forever i yeah. think thank you so much thank yeah you for, this is really great yeah this was a lot of fun and uh hopefully hopefully i can have this published by friday and edited and, and published by friday that's the goal okay that's the goal. cool awesome yeah. thank you so much thank for coming yeah, on again this was wonderful thank you this is <laughs> oh man i haven't said your name yet i gotta channel my inner italian uh, this is Abigail Favale. Yeah, that's good. Bam. She's the assistant professor of English and director <laughs> of the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University. Take that bio presented at firstthings.com that I copied and pasted that from. <laughs> but they need to update that. Yeah. Director. Yeah, that's true. They do. Nice. And I want to thank you for coming on and talking about basically every single thing having to do with women or sex. Yeah. Well, you know, and I have lots of other thoughts on it, too. So if you ever need me on again i'm happy to to chat this has cool. been fun yeah maybe we'll roll a b-side episode on like christian feminism or something like that good yeah i think that could be cool i think that could be really cool Alrighty, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and read your stuff we'll have of course links to your first things articles i already have them ready okay ready to rock and roll um in the show notes of our show but uh i don't know are you super active on twitter or where can people find you i will never be on Twitter again. 
I'm not super active. <laughs> you cannot find me on Twitter. Good for you. Um, I am. Good for you. I am on Facebook, so you can find me on Facebook um, or by email. Um, you can um, just find the George Fox website. Um, you can email me directly. So, you know, I'm findable, and yeah, that's it. No, awesome. no social go. media really. <laughs> so, and your book. When is your book going to be published? When is that coming out? When can people get a hold of it? It is out. So it just came it out. out. Um, yeah. So it's available on Amazon um, or directly from the publisher. I think at a slightly reduced price. Um, if you're in the Portland area, I'm doing a book launch on December 9th in Newburgh at chapters so there'll be discounted volumes there yeah the berg (laughs) um (laughs) so yeah into the deep an unlikely catholic conversion very unlikely yes very (laughs) very unlikely nice well thank you so much for coming on our show thank you it's been an honor yeah awesome yes absolutely you can find me at the luke or no (laughs) you can find luke (laughs) you can find You can find us online, uh, me not me ignoring you on Twitter at Lay Evangelist and Luke at the Luke the screaming about the U.S. men's soccer team. Oh, they're horrible! They are horrible. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Check out mycatholichealthcare.org. I want to thank Kuro for sponsoring Catching Foxes. 